If you would, open your Bible to John chapter 3. Dallas, you're a busy man this morning, brother. We appreciate you. John chapter 3. As we saw last week, Nicodemus here in John chapter 3, this righteous man, a man of, of stature in the Jewish community, he comes to Jesus by night, and we've just learned that, that Jesus knows what is in all men. And, and, and Jesus here in this narrative interrupts Nicodemus. He interrupts Nicodemus in all the assumptions that he has made about his being a part of the kingdom. Nicodemus came with his own righteousness, his own ethnic uh, background, his own morality. And he's wondering here, do I just need to add something to all that I've already done? And Jesus interrupts those thoughts, the questioning of Nicodemus, to point out the reality that we cannot bring ourselves to Christ. That we can't bring ourselves into the kingdom. That we can't establish ourselves as believers. That as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we can't put our sanctification before our justification. We, we must be born again. Our rebirth is what makes us Christians. God, in His divine mercy, is the only one that can ever grow a church. He's the only one that has ever grown the church. He's the only one that has ever saved anyone. Rebirth, what we learn in this passage, is absolutely necessary. We should not come assuming anything of our being in Christ. Assumptions are a very bad way to live the spiritual life of a Christian. We must come with solid assurance that we belong to Him. And the only way that we have that assurance is by being born again of the hand of God. So, being reminded this morning that our rebirth is not ethnic, it's not of our teaching, it's not of morality, it's not by adding something, it's not by our decisions, but by grace alone. With that in mind, would you stand as we read these first 15 verses yet again. These verses given through John in the power of the Spirit as he as recorded here now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And this is the verse that we're going to pay attention to predominantly today. Verse 8 the wind blows where it wishes. You, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How 
can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Would you pray with me, beloved? Father, we come into your presence this morning again thankful for the mercy and the grace that you've poured out into our lives who believe here today. Father, we come thankful for your institution of the Lord's table as as an emblem of our memory of all that Christ has done for us, that we will never face your wrath, but that we are hidden in Christ, that we are hidden under His mercies. So we come this morning thankful. We're thankful for these words that teach us that we cannot add anything to the efficacious work that Christ has done. We are merely recipients of your grace, and we long to behold you in all of your glory. In Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So what we have here in this being born again is uh, the reality that we must be born a second time, that we must be born again, that it is a mysterious happening. And this is a, a term that is found in varying ways all throughout the New Testament. At times we use these for this phrase born again. At other times the Bible speaks of regeneration. Generation is that creating of something out of nothing, something that only God can do, generating ex nihilo. And here we have a, a word that, that, that uses that idea of the first creation in a recapitulating fashion to teach us that as God spoke everything that is out of nothing, what verse 3 tells us, that there was nothing made without Christ, so there is nothing saved without Christ. We must be regenerated. We must be made. Again, the the Bible in the New Testament also, the the economy of, of, of the new birth uses the words new creation. Out of nothing, again, there is this creative effort uh, we also understand that the believer is given a new heart in the biblical economy to picture this reality of regeneration, a clean heart. We see also in Ephesians chapter 2 the reality of resurrection, that we've been raised with Christ as Romans chapter 6 tells us. And what these terms do is they bring great emphasis to the idea of new life, that it's Listen, if you hear nothing else that I say this morning, our rebirth is not something we do. I don't care what your Baptist pastor has taught you. I don't care what your, your background, I don't care what you learned in Awana. Regeneration is an act of mercy by Almighty God and anyone who wants to trifle with that idea is not arguing with Jay Clatworthy this morning. They are arguing with the God of the universe. He is the one who has created all things, and He is the only one who can recreate that which has been so marred by the fall. It is absolute arrogance to believe that we have any part in regenerating ourselves. 
And if you truly believe that you have a part in it, I want you to be honest in all of your theology and go down to Johnson's funeral home today and go to wherever they're having a a wake and lay in front of the, the casket and just plead with the individual who is dead, come on, buddy, get back up. We've got things to do. Let's go on. Everybody would think you're crazy. Well, the reality is in the spiritual and religious economy of America today, that is the illustration of the absolute foolishness that we face today. People that will stand before souls that are dead in trespasses and sins and try to convince them that you can have part of the glory of bringing yourself to be a regenerate believer. It is not so. And I hope that by the time that we're done this morning, if there's anything in your heart that says, I don't quite agree with that, and that's that, 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 that the Lord, not Jay, would deal with that portion of your heart. What is being said here to Nicodemus is, as Nicodemus is coming with all that he has been taught throughout his religious life, and friends, can I just say this this morning? Every one of us in here comes with a spiritual background. If you come thinking that it's a strong one and that you've done great, you are the least likely to learn from the Word of God. We all have a spiritual heritage in some form or fashion, whatever that is, if we're in Christ and we can be thankful for that, and I'm not here to mar that. I am here to to draw you to the cue that the most religious man in all of Israel comes to Jesus by night, expecting and presuming about his salvation, and Jesus says, Bud... Unless I give you new birth, you can't even see the kingdom, let alone be part of it. That should be sobering. That should make us fall to our knees in adoration. That if we can see the reality that we have been taken out of the darkness into marvelous light, God has done something miraculous by His own Power. What is being said here is that the new birth is profound. It's not just an improvement. It's not an effort. It's not something that you participate in. It's something merely that you receive. A new divine life, if you are born again genuinely, has been placed in you. And if that's not a reality, you can memorize the entire Bible. You can give everything that you have. You can spend your life preaching the Gospel. You can add up good work after good work after good work. And if He has not birthed you anew, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You can try to put lipstick on your spiritual pig for the rest of your life. It will do you no good when you come before the throne of judgment. This points to the reality that new birth has nothing to do with who we are. That Nicodemus comes in all of his goodness, in all of his religious thinking, in all of his education, and Jesus lays him low. Only regeneration, only the new birth can make you a part of the kingdom. Now, natural man doesn't want to hear that. Natural man wants his religion. He wants to know That he's decided that he was a part of this. That he had a vote in the matter. Have you ever heard the devil votes against you, God votes for you, and you cast the deciding vote? I promise you that is a damnable lie and not the Gospel. 
When God votes for you, it's over. That's the only vote that matters. And to be born again means that God has done that very gracious work in your life. Do you not see what what Christ is saying here? If you are not born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. If this aren't, it wasn't the case, if we didn't need to see, then the new birth wouldn't be a necessity. But the new birth is a necessity. We're all born spiritually blind. We're all born spiritually dead. And some of you here this morning think, and maybe you're hearing that for the first time, maybe you've heard the gospel couched in, do as much as you can and God will do the rest. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that without God, you're spiritually dead and your trespasses and sins if you're the most spiritual person in here. And you might think, well, then what can I do? In some sense, the answer to that question is nothing. In another sense, there is this impulse that the Bible gives that if you realize you're spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, cry out for life. Cry out that God would save you. Cry out to Him, recognizing both the weight of your sin and the glory of Christ's sacrifice. But I promise you, you'll never cry out. You'll never see your sin. Unless, of course, you are born again. So the question that this passage, that these first eight verses beg of us over and over and over again in a seminal fashion is, are you born again? It doesn't ask, Jesus doesn't say, unless one is a Baptist, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born into a Christian family. Unless one has memorized a significant portion of the Bible. And can I tell you something? I think Bible memorization is an absolute gift to the church. We should memorize our Bible. Can we agree on that this morning? But if we think that we live in a day and age where any of us have cause to boast in Bible memorization, all we declare is the reality that we don't know our church history. Because in the first four centuries of the church, do you know to be a deacon in the church, you had to have the entire Psalter memorized? Alright, deacons. You ready? I preached through all 150. Let's hear you recite all 150. And then, generally speaking, there would have also been an impulse that you would have had one of the Gospels and at least one pastoral letter memorized in its entirety. We don't live in a spiritually robust age. We live in a spiritually weak age and we have substituted some things as a mark to pat ourselves on the back. We have no reason to pat ourselves on the back. Even if we memorize the entirety of Scripture, the work still all belongs to Him. Amen? So are you born again? That is the succinct question and then what comes in this eighth verse is Jesus describing in some sense the mystery of that new birth the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes so he says it is with everyone who is born of the spirit He's comparing. So, comparable to that, 
Everyone who is born of the Spirit, this analogy of the wind blowing where it wishes and you hearing its sound, but not knowing where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with all of us who are born again. And I think there are two, there have been two things here pointed out that I find helpful that are erroneous. One is to teach that everyone's subjective experience in coming, that this verse would teach that every subject, everyone's subjective experience of coming to saving faith has to be the same. And there are entire religious philosophies that, that seek to do this, that seek to make some sort of a, 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 a mill where if you walk the sawdust trail and you pray this prayer and you fill out this card, then you are born again. And we've ha- all had that experience. Yay! That's not the impulse of the New Testament. Jesus doesn't outline that methodology at all. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be saved in that methodology. I'm saying that we don't all have to be saved through something like that. Does that make sense? All of our experience is not uh, subjectively the same. There's another impulse, I think, out of this that we'll all have the exact same amount of spiritual growth and spiritual life. That's also not true. One of the things that I have learned so clearly as I've preached from this pulpit is this reality. That real, genuine life is never mechanical. You know, mechanical is when you get the furniture from Ikea, and if you're a man in here, you throw the instructions over in the corner. That's step one. We, no man in this room has ever... There is a mystery of mysteries to men, and it's step one of any instructions because we don't read them. And then we go and we mechanically just put together the piece of furniture so that it looks like every other piece of furniture that came in the same, from the same factory in the same box. Does that make sense? Mechanical, just stamping things out. That's not the way Jesus works. He works organically. Some of us will grow quickly. Some of us will be sanctified slowly. Some of us in our regeneration, it happens instantaneously. Some of us this morning, it took years of of being drugged through Scripture and being shown our sin and and, and wrestling. Some of us uh, have had parents who have helped us in our coming to faith. Some of us lived in godless homes where that's not the case. Jesus does not stamp out carbon copies in every area of our spiritual walk. And Scripture doesn't teach that reality. The process varies. The act of regeneration is God's act alone. And so what what John is trying to illustrate for us here this morning is this reality. That I don't get to see the moment of regeneration. And at some level, it's subconscious. It's not something that we consciously, at the moment, experience necessarily. You don't don't know the exact moment that the wind has started to blow. But what you see is the after effects. When when a storm rolls in, you can be inside, and, and the storm may have started 30 minutes before. You look out the window, and you see the tree doing one of these numbers, and you know that the wind is blowing. You know the effect that the wind has started to prevail. And, and what Jesus is saying is that if you've been born again, what matters is not pinpointing the moment, it's that you see the effects of being born again. We look for regeneration not in the moment of regeneration, but what, it, what follows uh, regeneration. Our being born again produces something. There is an effect in our life. And friends, this is why I think it's so important that we have to be, and, and we can have an honest disagreement about this here, 
But I believe that one of the most pernicious lies in the past 150 years to the people of God, and I will stand before God and say this, so you can be angry with me, and I'm not going to be angry back. One of the most pernicious lies is the exaggeration of the altar call in religious services. It's the propping up of some way that we can promise people in a papal way heaven with them out ever actually receiving regeneration. If God births you anew, I don't need you to fill out a card. The evidences are more glorious than that. Can, can you, can, I mean, can we just all agree that, that boiling down the glories and the mysteries that Jesus is speaking of here to a 3 by 5 Manila index card is an absolute mockery of the Gospel. It's ridiculous. Because part of what we are teaching individuals is that they initiate their salvation. Do you know that you know that you know that you know that you know? Regeneration comes in someone's life in such a way that they genuinely love Jesus, they love the truth, they love His church, and they desire to guard, to honor His commands in their lives. That's the fruit that we look for. That's what 1 John tells us. We're not asking for people to initiate anything. God so loved the world that He sent His only Son into the world that whoever believes on Him would have life. God has initiated everything. And God will complete His work of redemption by regenerating the souls of men. We need to trust that as we proclaim the Gospel, God will do His work. But do you see how how fickle our faith is? I just need to add one thing. And that's that's what James Grandison Finney did when he invented the altar call. This passage stands succinctly to teach us we can do nothing to add to the regenerative power of Almighty God. Does anybody here this morning believe that you can do anything to add to the creative works of God in making an extra planet outside of the the, the earth? We would think you're ludicrous. But we accept in droves theology that says, but we can be part of the recreation. Do you see how foolish that is? And and I just hasten to tell you this, that there's a warning in Scripture that says there will be a time when people will ultimately hold to a version of the Gospel, but they will deny its power. I don't need your altar call For God to do His sovereign work. And I just want you to know this morning that if you're going, well, I've held on to that because I'm just so used to it. I did for years as well. The Bible just doesn't allow the arguments for it to hold water. So you have to make a decision. Am I going to repent and believe? Or am I going to go with the religious crowd? So the question this morning that I really came to answer is this, and we're going to have to buckle up and plow quickly. What are the characteristics 
of a life that has been born anew. If the wind blows where it wishes and we see the effect of the wind, so it is with believers that we see those effects. What are the rustling of the leaves of the spiritual life of one who has truly been born again? And the first thing that I would, I would commend to you is family resemblance. Hey, you don't have to know uh, very long a Clatworthy to see that they're a Clatworthy. We're a loud group of people. And we're an energetic bunch of people. You get four of the Clatworthy boys together in, the, in one room at one time, may God go with you. And there is a family resemblance there. There is a, a likeness that you can see in who they are and how they behave. Well, when a man is born again, our likeness to the family is the thing that becomes most notable because he has become a partaker of that same divine nature. God has implanted the same Spirit in all of us and so we have likeness one to another. Now, I think one of the things that's important on the heels of that reality that when we are born again, we will share a familiar feeling with our family. There's really two things. One is, I want to commend to your mind a, a warning here that in our generation what has happened is the church leaders have said, church, if you really want to be effective, stop acting like the church and start acting like the world. Because the more you are like the world, the more comfortable the world will, will be with coming into your midst. And then we can really see people come to Jesus. Do you know what you've done? You've replaced family resemblance for the lost family out in the world. You have obscured what it means to look like a Christian so that you can be acceptable to the world. Can I just encourage you? The greater desire of our heart should be to be acceptable before Almighty God. And as He makes us acceptable before Himself, as He sanctifies us, we will be beautiful to those who are lost in their trespasses and sins whom God is saving. The other thing that I think we need to think through as we realize, and, and I think it's a clear argument that if we are born again, one of the after effects is that we have bear a family resemblance is to actually know our family heritage. If we only know those who are alive in our own day and what Christianity looks like today, then we don't have a full-orbed understanding of what it means to actually be part of a family. Friends, we don't terminate our Christian life in this room. It will terminate in glory with all of the saints of God, all of those that the Father purposed to save before the foundation of the world. We will be there, and the concern we should have is to be more like them, not, by, not like the passing fads of our religious day. It's one of the, listen, when you grow up in a Southern Baptist church in the middle of Fayette, Missouri, and altar calls are the very essence of everything that happens in the church. The Lord's table is pushed out of the way, and you only do that once a year because if you need assurance, Chad, you don't need the Lord's table, you need the altar call. That's what I grew up in. And, and, and you grow up with, 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 with the idea that this is only a remembrance. That's all that's happening here. And the table's been so degraded. And then all of a sudden something happens to you. You start reading the Word of God. And you start filtering through what's happening. And I'm not picking on the little church I grew up in. I'm thankful for it. And even in its error, I'm, I'm thankful. Uh, but you start reading through church history and you realize, wait a minute. We call ourselves Baptist. 
there's a lot going on in here that's not Baptist. Where did this come from? And then you step back from just the Baptist heritage that you have and you look at the way that the church has functioned throughout the centuries and you go, wait a minute, this family resemblance, this being like the family of God, we corporately have lost a lot here. And we need to have a long view. We need to look not just... Because here's what can happen. Friends, we have, can we all just agree on this this morning? Jesus has told us that wolves will come in among us seeking to destroy the flock. It's really easy for wolves to look around and go, what do the sheep look like today? And I'll just start acting like a sheep. It's really difficult for those wolves to have a better grasp on the, the, the full weight and reality of what the church has been throughout the ages. Because most wolves aren't going to want to give that kind of time to understanding the genuine Christian heritage. What I'm commending to you this morning is if you, if you want to continue to grow and understand where you need to be sanctified, know church history. Know those who have gone before you. Know what it really means to live in the Spirit. The second thing that I think we have to be, and just, just to be, listen, this, this spiritual resemblance, this family resemblance, there have been many antichrists, plural, that have gone out into the world. The Bible teaches us that clearly. Many people who bear the name of Jesus, but they're opposed to His gospel. There are a lot of men and women who love preaching. They love to talk about charisma and Caruso, and, and they love all of the academia that follows, and, and they, they love to pontificate about how we should love one another, and all of these different moral things, and teachings, and schools of thought, and philosophy, and they will use the instrumentation of the church. There's just one thing lacking. They have no spiritual emphasis of actually knowing Christ, actually knowing Jesus. And it's really imperative that that we have a good grounding of what that looks like. I I promise you, we have all, in some sense or another, been deceived in understanding what our family resemblance is. The second thing that happens after our new birth is we know that God has dealt with us. If we truly are in Christ, then we know that God has confronted us in our sin. To be truly born again, an individual who says, well, I gave myself to God. That is a declaration that you don't even begin to... Now, I can see Nicodemus saying that. I showed up that night. I was ready to give myself to Jesus. And Jesus stopped him in his tracks. You can't give nothing unless you're born again. You don't even know what to give without being born again. The picture of regeneration is not that we give something to God. It's that God lays a hold of us. That God came after us. That He pursues us. That He reaches out and He redeems us. And that work of regeneration is His and His alone. I know I've shared this with you before. If this is read at my funeral, I'll be very pleased. Uh, This poem, The Hiding Place, I think encapsulates what it really means to be 
pursued by the gospel. And if you remember, uh, I think the last time I read it, I shared with you, I'm pretty sure that this was hidden in the boot of John Andre, an, an individual who was put to death during the American Revolutionary War. Listen to these words. Hail sovereign love which first began the scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail sovereign free eternal grace which gave my soul a hiding place. Against the God who ruled the sky I fought with hand uplifted high. Despised the mention of His grace. Too proud to seek a hiding place. Enwrapped in thick Egyptian night. And fond of darkness more than light. Madly I ran the sinful race secure without a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsel ran, Almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the errors of distress and found I had no hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view, to Sinai's fiery mount I flew, but justice cried with frowning face, This mountain is no hiding place. Ere long a heavenly voice I heard and mercy's angel soon appeared. He led me on with gentle pace to Jesus as my hiding place. Should sevenfold storms of thunder roll and shake the earth from pole to pole, no thunderbolt shall daunt my face with Jesus as my hiding place. A few more rolling suns at most shall land me on safe Canaan's coast, where I shall sing the song of grace and see my glorious hiding place. It is not our actions, beloved, that we must be concerned with. It must be this question. Has God dealt with you? Has He shown you the reality that you are a sinner? Has He shown you your depravity? Has He opened your eyes that apart from His grace, you are nothing and damned to hell? Has He dealt with your soul? And if He hasn't, it doesn't matter what religious thing you've done. Think about those words of that hiding place. Almighty love, arrest that man. Has the love of God arrested you? Has God interrupted your life in such a moment as to show you how awful you are? Or quite frankly, there are some of you, and again, the subjective components of this can be really vast. Some of you don't need to be shown the weight of your depravity as much as the weight of the meritlessness of your good works. That your goodness, that your keeping all of the rules, that your being in, in, in perfect step religiously will not save you. He needs to declare to you and deal with you that those things are not sufficient for your salvation. It's part of what... What this being dealt with is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and that I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? And he answers succinctly this way. Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Christ has made me anew. He lay hold of me. He took me. He never says, Paul never says, never says, I decided for Christ. No, Christ decided. He decided to take me. He decided to make me His own. 
Now, there, of course, and this is one of the glorious realities of understanding uh, regeneration and the gospel, there are things. Does any of us in here, were any of you on the road to Damascus having persecuted the early church when God saved you? Did any of you experience a, a, an opening of the heavens and beholding of Christ in, in the same way that Paul did? Well, you're a really boring group. Thought maybe one of you had. No, that, that, that's unique to Paul. Have any of you been given the exact same calling to be an apostle? Now, boy, this will confuse some in our day. The answer to this question is no, so don't let anybody amen. Have any of you been given the, the office of apostle to be the apostle to the Gentiles? The way that Paul did? No. Those are subjective realities. It's interesting that Paul doesn't come and he doesn't say, well, what you need, church, is for the heavens to open. What you need is to be given this office. That's not what he says. What he says is I press on in everything that he has subjectively called me to. And why? Because of the universal reality that is true for every Christian life. And that is that Christ has made us His own. That's a glorious truth. Y'all, that should make us get up and dance as good Baptists. I mean, we should be shouting amen at that. He made us His own. Now here's the thing, when you grow up and you're taught the altar call verbiage and the religious stuff that comes with, with evangelicalism in America, maybe it seems plausible, but when the, when, when the Apostle Paul stands before us and says, Christ made me His own, does that not make the altar call look so weak and foolish? Christ made us His own. And we can glory in the reality that He's dealt with us. Friends, I remember... Sarah and I celebrated our 18th anniversary this past week. 18 years. She's put up with me for that long. I think like two more and there should be a congressional medal bestowed. Amen. And those of you that know us closely know that that's not an exaggeration. I had been brought up in such tepid, silly, superficial Christianity and I was such a mess when my wife met me. I still, to, to this day, don't understand why she ever agreed to even go get a Coke with me. Let alone say yes when I asked her to marry me. That's, that's absurdity. And she did, and I'm thankful. I remember distinctly that first year of our marriage. One, you find out in your marriage that you're inadequate in a lot of ways, especially as a 20-year-old man. But I remember distinctly all throughout that first year of our marriage, I was so enamored with one aspect of the gospel, and that was forgiveness. That God had actually forgiven me. That God had, had actually declared and redeemed me and, and declared me to be righteous. I, and so much so, this is a silly anecdote, but I remember, you know, you, if you want vanity plates, you go down to the DMV and you type in what you want, and you, generally you try to take, have you ever been in the drive-thru at McDonald's and you look at a vanity plate where they've tried to spell something out, and you're like, that's either something really comical or really profane, and I don't want to blurt out what I think that says. Because it's just a mess. And I remember going, and, and I wanted license plates that either had some form of redeemed or forgiven. Because in my life at that time, that was at the forefront. I was so enamored with the reality that God had dealt with me, and He had forgiven me. The frustrating part was this. 
Apparently, there were other members of the family that I resembled at that time, and there was not a stinking way to get either one of those license plates. I mean, I tried everything under the sun, but apparently the whole body of Missouri Christians wanted to declare the same thing, that they're forgiven, that they've been dealt with. And so when you are actually born again, the glory of the gospel is not, I have my life together. Do you, do you see? Now, now juxtapose this with Nicodemus. And see the glory of it. Nicodemus comes and, Jesus, I've got some questions for you. And he's declaring publicly that he's not been dealt with. He's merely been shown some religious things. But when you come face to face with the living God, when you've really been dealt with, it does something more. And that something more is that it humbles you. Unless a man of God be born again, he can't even see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is here humbling Nicodemus. And what happens in that moment is we see the weight of our sin and we see the reality that we deserve the brutal wrath of God justly poured out on us and instead Jesus takes that wrath in our place and we are laid low. We substitute nothing for the reality of Jesus bringing us to that point of humility. Now, the humbling part is not always the most fun. When God shows us our inadequacies, when He shows us our sin, when He shows us who we truly are, that's not always the the glorious moment, but the glory comes after that in our humbling when we look up and we realize that as He has humbled us, He's also called us and given us a heavenly kingdom. This humbling is part and parcel to the being dealt with that we've just talked about in Philippians chapter 3 because listen to how Paul starts leaning into Philippians 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's humbling language. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor to the church, as to the righteousness of under the law, blameless. He's saying the same thing that I think is at Nicodemus' heart here in John 3. But he goes on, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him. Paul didn't depend on his own works, his own understanding of the law, or his own merits. God had brought him low. He had lost confidence in his fleshly works. He knew that the law would do nothing but condemn him. And so what was he left with? But this one thing that is also a mark of those who have been humbled before the Lord. It is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, you'll remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
Those who God deals with, he humbles. He brings them to know their own limits and their own moral bankruptcy. Friends, if we walk through the Bible this morning, we don't have time to, but we think about all of those heroes of the faith of Abraham and Moses and David. Are they known as being faithful because they didn't have failures? Are they known as being faithful because they were really uh, religiously devout? Are they known for, for being heroes in the faith because of their own intellectual superiority? And the answer is no in all of those categories. The one thing that all of those... They all had sin. Every one of them. Sometimes people... I, I'll, I'll read a theologian and somebody will go home and Google the, the, the theologian's name and they'll come back to me and they'll say, you do know that he sinned, right? I, everything in me wants to go, you do know that you do too, right? I don't. But the reality is this. No one other than Jesus has ever walked this way without sin being a central part of their life. No one. And, and the thing that binds us together who have been born anew, David and Abraham and Moses, is that we fear the Lord because we know the Lord. And we only know the Lord because of grace. Our righteousness will not stand before Him. I think it's what, what the, the, the writer of this poem that I read earlier is trying to get at when he said, I felt the arrows of distress. Those arrows of distress often come in a way of, I've lived in my own righteousness. I'm a pretty good old boy. And then all of a sudden you start reading the Bible and you go, whoa. Or you're sitting under preaching that's faithful to the text and wait a minute, I'm not as good as I thought I was. I felt the arrows of distress and I found I had no hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view. And this is, happens in young people's lives, in old people's lives too. To Sinai's fiery mount I flew. So I went to the law. I'm going to live righteously. Boy, that doesn't last ten minutes before you realize, boy, I, I can't do this. But justice cried with frowning face, this mountain is no hiding place. The law of Moses is not a place to find refuge. It's a place to declare to you, you need Jesus, you must repent and believe. That's what it's there for. So a man who's, who's born again will be a man who bears the family resemblance of a Christian who's been dealt with, who's been humbled. He's also a man who is truly repentant. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, you'll remember these words, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, Paul says, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief exposes our sins and we have sorrow not over the consequence of our sin, but over the heart of our sin, over the offense that it is before a holy God. And so we are grieved to the quick in our spirit. And in our grief, we come before God repenting, truly having a heart change and a mind change, turning to Him. So a man who has been born again will be, will bear family resemblance. He's dealt with He's humbled. He's repentant. 
He also has a seriousness in his life about the things of God. It doesn't, it doesn't mean necessarily that he, he's, he's stoic, he's, he's boring. I think Christians should be joyful and funny. Funny's okay. We can laugh. Funny, not the funny like odd. Some of you are thinking, yeah, Jay, you're funny. No, no, funny, uh, you, you, can, you can be happy, you should be jovial, we, should, we have every reason in this room to rejoice in who Christ is and what he's done for us. But he will be a man or a woman who, ha- who when the things of God are, are open to them, they take those things seriously. It's not a joke. It's not just casual nonsense to them. The gathering of the saints isn't a time for entertainment. It's a time to be fed the very words of Christ. That's what happens when we're born again. And finally, in that vein, to be born again, I find one of the marks of a true believer consistently is this, that you are left with a love for the Word of God. And he loves the Word of God increasingly. The family resemblance having been given, being humbled and repentant, being dealt with, taking things seriously. Finally, he looks into the Word of God and he finds something there that is so miraculous. Martin Luther said this, and I think it's fantastic. I study my Bible as I gather apples. First, I shake the whole tree that the ripest might fall. Then I shake each limb And when I have shaken each limb, I shake each branch and every twig. Then I look under the leaf. I search the Bible as a whole like shaking the whole tree. Then I shake every limb, study book after book. Then I shake every branch, giving attention to the chapters when they do not break the sense. Then I shake every twig or a careful study of paragraphs and sentences and words and their meanings. We rustle the whole tree because we want every apple on the tree. We want every promise. We want to live by what? is been given there. Or maybe maybe you'll be helped in seeing that this is an outworking of the new birth in John chapter 6 verses 68 through excuse me 66 through 69 you'll remember this interaction. After this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Friends, there are the altar call is the open door for wolves to come in. There's a lot of people in the world that are willing to walk an aisle, fill out a form, and pray one prayer. If you will tell them they're going to heaven, then they'll live like hell and they'll seek in some way to make the church about them. That's just true. Jesus had multitudes of people that followed him that really didn't belong to him. The dividing line comes here. So Jesus said to the twelve as these others are leaving, do you want to go away as well? Do you remember Simon Peter's response? He answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It is the Word of God that declares to the people of God the glory of God. It is here that all things in our lives come together. All of the sorrows and the pains and the difficult providences, all of them seem to come and make sense planted in this book. And many of us in this room have had the experience of watching a sunset, and that is a fantastic thing, isn't it? 
And just a natural, like if, if I go somewhere, I want to see the sunset because, you know, we can change our situation, but the glory that God displays in the character of the setting of the sun consistently day after day after day in different vistas is just beautiful. I don't know that I've ever saw, that I've ever witnessed a sunset that I've not thought, man, that's in some sense beautiful. Because, as we're told in the Word of God, the heavens declare the glory of God. There is a declaration of God's glory in His creation. And we see it in something that, that, that lost man just thinks is, it's just the solar system, it's the way planets move. No, no, God is declaring His goodness and His glory and all of the hues that we see and all of the wonderment just during that, that pivotal time of the day. So if we can learn the glory of God in that creative act... The Word is where we learn not just God's creative power, but His power to recreate. And that's why the born-again person will have the effect of loving the Word of God. Because as we look out into the cosmos and we see God declaring His glory in all of nature, whether it's a sunrise or a sunset, so we look at these words and we see something fourfold more miraculous than even that. And the reality that God would create a fresh and a new believing hearts in the lives of people who were once dead in their trespasses and sins. There's also something in a, in a sunrise, isn't there? It, it tells us of all of the potential of the day. It, it, it tells us of the freshness. It's a blank slate in some sense. Well, as a man uh, who has been born again looks into the Word, he sees every time something new, something that's fascinating, something that refreshes him, something that, that causes the dawn of the glory of Christ to beset his mind. The, the, the sun rising has its own life in it. And, 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 and in a sunrise, we also see the dissipating of the darkness. And so it is as we look into the Word of God, we see the dissipating of the sin in our own life. As we behold the glories of Christ, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the countenance of God's miraculous work. And we know that there will be one great new dawn one day, this this, this book tells every redeemed, every regenerate person that has ever walked this planet that though we can't see it now, there will be a day that the sun will set for the last time. And what will rise will not merely be the sun that we've been so accustomed to and we've taken for granted in declaring the glory of God but it will be the rising of His Son in His second coming, full of grace and truth, to completely establish His kingdom and to rule for all of eternity. And for that, we will ever give praise to His name. We haven't arrived there yet. We can't see it with our eyes yet. The closest that we can come is allowing our eyes to roll over every word that we find in the pages of Scripture. We will behold the beauty of the one that John talks about here in these first three verses of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Beloved, there's going to be a day when we understand those words in a new light. We'll understand a recreated heaven and earth. And we'll be able to say there's nothing that's been made new 
that hasn't been made new through him. Everything that is beaming with the glory of God in the new creation will be so because Christ has brought it to be. So if you are born again, you are a person who bears the family resemblance. You seem to be a Christian. And those marks issue forth in having been dealt with, in having been humbled, been brought to a repentant heart, been brought to a place where you take the things of God seriously and you long after the serious meat of the Word of God. As the, as the poet finished his poem, so I finish today, a few more rolling suns at most shall land us safe on Canaan's coast. Where I shall sing, we will all sing the song of grace, and we will see our glorious hiding place. Let's pray for that dawn. Father God, we come before you this morning knowing that you birth us anew. You are the one who regenerates our hearts. You take us from being spiritually dead. And if there's one here today that has never truly been born again, I pray that You would reveal to them their own sin, that You would show them their own foolishness and folly, and that they would cling to Christ and to Christ alone, not to religion, not to their works, not to their education, not to their own intuition, but only to Jesus. Father, I pray that You would give us hearts that long for the day when when the sun will rise, when, when Christ will, will come again, when He will establish His throne and His rule forever. Father, I, I pray that we would be people who wait longingly for Him. Lord, we lift before You today Paula McClure, and we're so thankful for her. And God, we just ask that You would continue to strengthen her, give the doctors wisdom who are treating her. We thank You for the new lives of Hayden and Grayson Baker. And we pray for Yasmin and, and for James. We pray strength that these twin babies, uh, that you would give them grace in the days ahead to, to, to take care of these little ones. And Father, we pray for grace in, in raising them up in the la- love and admonition of the Lord. Lord, I pray for those who are sick and suffering in this town. I pray for those who have lost loved ones over this weekend. I ask that you would be a very real presence and comfort. And Lord, above all things, we know that we live in a land of shadows and of spiritual death. We see it all the time. People who are going about feasting on the things of this life all the while neglecting the good graces that You've given through Your Word. Father, we acknowledge our powerlessness to bring new life. And so we call upon You to revive our community again, to open the eyes and the minds and the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, to the glories of Christ. Might we put away religious things and hold fast to the ordinances that you have ordained because it is you and your wisdom who are holding the church and the cosmos and everything together this morning. So we entrust ourselves to your care and to that alone. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, please rise and let's sing about the glory of our Christ. Our glory be to him.